God's Word from Acts chapter 16. We'll be looking at verses 6 through 40 through the end of the chapter, but I will read now uh, verses 6 through 10 uh, as we begin. Hear now God's Word. Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the Word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded, and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. Maybe seated. Jonathan Edwards, a famous Puritan preacher, wrote a book titled A Narrative of Surprising Conversions, where he documented a number of, of situations and cases where individuals were converted. And it, so it describes the remarkable work of, of God in his own day. And history is full of surprising conversions. In fact, this room is full of surprising conversions. And this chapter in Acts is also full of surprising conversions. God works in mysterious ways. He works in unexpected ways. And the most unlikely people end up following Jesus. So we're not to be looking at people trying to figure out whether we think they will or they won't believe. We're to preach the word. We're to tell them the word. We're to love them. We're to show them the gospel. And in doing that, God begins a work. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That seed is planted. And so we read in scripture that some plant and some water, but God gives the increase. Pastor Wilson recently wrote regarding the two major worldviews that are currently operating in our world. The Marxist woke worldview that can be seen uh, by dividing people with a horizontal line. On the top are oppressors. They're bad. On the bottom are victims. They're innocent. That's how the world is to be divided. And there is a constant effort to divide us in that way. The oppressors and the oppressed. The the guilty and the innocent. That's very contrary uh, to the view that we have as Christians. In this former view, there is no hope for the oppressor class and really little or no hope for the victim class. The Christian view can be represented by a vertical line. All people are sinners. The rich, the poor, white or black, male or female, they are all guilty and they all need a Savior. And this view will be illustrated in our text today. And what this means is, this is the good news, is that means there is hope for everyone. Because Jesus is that Savior. Now we begin the story of Paul's second missionary journey here in Acts 16. Here is where we will see the gospel going for the first time into what we would call European territory. G. Campbell Morgan wrote, 
That invasion of Europe was not in the mind of Paul, but it was evidently in the mind of the Spirit. And as a result, Europe will become the first Christian continent, which will also then become the hub of missionary outreach to the rest of the world. From there, the gospel will fan out to the continents of Africa, Asia, North America, Latin America, and to the rest of the world. Paul and his companions set out to establish churches in three Roman provinces, which they had not reached during their first missionary journey. And so in this second missionary journey, they will visit three provinces and capital cities. Uh, Macedonia uh, is in Thessalonica, Achaia in Corinth, and Asia, excuse me, I'm getting this back, Thessalonica is in, in Macedonia, Corinth and Achaia and uh, Ephesus in Asia. Paul would later write letters to the churches in these capital cities. And in this chapter, we're going to focus in chapter 16 on Macedonia and a visit to three cities, to Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. So in verse 6, again we'll read, Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia and tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, to understand this passage, I think we must engage in a bit of speculation because the text does not explicitly tell us how the Holy Spirit did this preventative work. Was this some form of inward impression or was it from some outward circumstance? I am inclined to think that it was the latter because what these men understood was that the providence of God was always at work. They were interpreting everything that happened in light of what the Spirit was doing. And so perhaps, um, so, so they, they interpreted the circumstances based on that presupposition. Any number of things could have prevented them from going where they wanted to go. A blocked road, bad weather. Uh, some kind of uh, trouble, a skirmish that has broken out. Uh, any number of things might have been the providential means, and they saw that as the work of the Spirit. And we add to this what, what is called the Macedonian vision that Paul had, where he sees a man pleading with him to come to Macedonia and speak to them. But what's interesting, and it's instructive, is to see that after Paul shares this vision, this dream, uh, with his companions, coupled with whatever information uh, indicated that they, they, that they couldn't or shouldn't go in the other direction, whether that was a blocked road or whatever, uh, the way they intended to go, what we see in this text is that the group deliberates. They talk about it. They discuss, what does this mean? Let's take all the information. We need to make a decision. What are we going to do next? And so they reached, uh, the text says, they reached a conclusion. A col- uh, they collectively reached a consensus, that's the meaning of the Greek word here, to go to Macedonia 
and preach the gospel. So Paul wasn't just acting independently. He brought that to the others, and they discussed it, and that's what they decided. So it is common for us to find God's guidance in both negative and positive forms. What we say might call open and closed doors, though I'm reminded of what uh, Dr. J. Adams once pointed out, that we should be careful about going through every open door right away because some open doors lead to elevator shafts. Um, so we, we want to be cautious and not just be too quick to start interpreting everything. We should seek the wisdom and the counsel from others before reaching a conclusion just as Paul did. Note, too, that in verse 10, Luke's pronouns change from they to we, indicating that he himself is now a part of this party. Uh, so they, he says that uh, they, they immediately alter their original plans. Verse 11, therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course uh, to Samothrace, and the next day came to ne- uh, Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony, and we, and we were staying in that city for some days. So Samothrace is a rocky island whose peak is about 5,000 feet high. Perhaps uh, they spent the night there on this journey. Uh, the next day they reached uh, Neapolis, which means that they must have had some pretty favorable winds since this means they traveled 150 miles in two days. In Acts 20, we, uh, verse 6, we learn that the return trip took five days. So from Neapolis, they had a 10-mile walk inland to Philippi. As I'm working through this, I'm over and over thinking, that's why I'm curious about these distances and just thinking about walking. You, know, you get here, imagine you, you've been on a two-day journey on a ship, and now you're going to take a 10-mile hike with your gear. You know, it wasn't just a stroll. They had to take things with them, supplies. So Luke will now single out three converts, which will demonstrate how God reaches all kinds of people. This is really important. I think we have to, we know because what the scriptures tell us that many people were converted. And Luke, in telling this story, has singled out these three particular people to give us a picture of the range and the scope of the gospel. So in verse 13, and on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Now apparently there was no synagogue in Philippi, but there was a place where people gathered to pray about a mile outside the city gate. And this in particular was a gathering of women. And we might recall that it took ten men uh, to form a synagogue. So we have to recognize now that it's very likely that the Jewish community here is a very small minority of people. And But this situation just reminded me of that famous Allison Krauss song. I went down to the river to pray, studying about the good old way and who shall wear the starry crown. Good Lord, show me the way. So I don't know exactly what the ladies were praying, but that's exactly what happens. 
It seems that Paul and his companions came there and then they were invited to speak to this group of women. Luke singles out one woman named Lydia, a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, who worshipped God. So Thyatira was famous uh, for centuries for its dyes. Um, And Lydia specialized in fabric that was treated with very, very expensive purple dye. It's an interesting detail that Luke includes here. It seems that he's including this detail to emphasize that Lydia was a very prominent and wealthy merchant lady, uh, which also is indicated by her having a house that she's going to invite them to, and that house has servants. And I found this background information both interesting and also helpful to emphasize Lydia's likely position. So I'll just read this, what I found about this particular purple dye, which was only used by royalty. The most prized and expensive dye was called Tyrian purple. It was originally because it was from Phoenicia, or where it was developed, which came from small mollusk, a little seashell. Uh, and uh, inside of that is the Murex snail lives inside that shell. The historian Pliny remarked on the rather unpleasant smell that this process produced. According to him, it took as many as 250,000 snails to produce one single ounce of dye. Once the snails were harvested from the sea, uh, the mucus glands were removed, dried, and placed in a lead pot filled with brine. The pot was then slowly heated for about 10 days until the mixture produced a reddish-purple color. This purple dye remains extremely valuable, and as of Thursday, when I looked this up, uh, German dye company Kremer Pigments markets Tyrian purple for $400 per 100 milligrams, or to translate that, is $113,000 per ounce. So Lydia had a very uh, exclusive market here. Now, since Lydia's day, there there are synthetic purple dyes that have come close to matching that that are a lot less expensive. But in this day, if you wanted purple that not only started out purple but got more purple as time went on, uh, and that's what royals wanted, this became a very exclusive thing. So Lydia, we're told, was also a worshiper of God, which means that she, as a Gentile, well, she's actually, it's interesting that Paul and uh, his, his entourage are forbidden to go to Asia, but the first convert we hear about is an Asian, who's Lydia. And so she's a Gentile, but she's believing uh, along with the Jews, otherwise Luke would have just said she was a Jew. And there's an important theological point made in Luke's description of what happened. Jesus is not just knocking at the door of Lydia's heart, hoping that she will, uh, you know, he's kind of just anxious to see if she'll actually open the door of her heart. He's very explicit, and he says this, The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. This is the work of God on Lydia. As it is in our day, when the gospel is preached, some people believe and others don't. I was reading a booklet this last couple of weeks on death, and Thomas Long wrote this. He said, for those who do believe, 
the word belief becomes too small. One's relationship to the risen Christ is better described as trust and faith. One wagers one's life on the truth of the resurrection and rests one's hope in its promise. And then something remarkable happens. The eyes of faith begin to perceive evidence of the life-giving power of God all around. We see it everywhere. Once one trusts that God brought life from death in Jesus, one begins to see God bringing life from every from life from death every day. In the healing of disease, the toppling of tyrants, the reconciliation of enemies and more, we do not add up the evidence and then on the basis of it come to faith in the resurrection. It works the other way. We come to faith. And then the evidence becomes visible. I was blind, but now I see. It's interesting that Paul had been, again, forbidden to go to Asia, and here's Lydia. So Lydia is converted to Christ, and when she and her household were baptized, she begged Paul and his companions, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house today. And Luke says, so she persuaded us. So Lydia's heart was opened. And guess what happened next? Her home was open. Hospitality and openness. What's mine is yours. Come share that with us. Let me care for you. So immediately we see this evidence in her, this openness and welcoming. So that's surprising conversion number one. A wealthy business lady in uh, that's worshiping there down by the river, and God opens her heart. Now, we're going to go the other direction. Verse 16. Now, it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl, possessed with a spirit of divination, met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, and I had to chuckle at this, greatly annoyed, (laughs) turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her masters saw that their hopes of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. So this girl literally had had the spirit of, the Greek word here is uh, the word for python, a word which references the snake of classical mythology which guarded the temple of Apollo and the Delphic oracle at Mount uh, Parnassus. Apollo was thought to be embodied in the snake and to inspire Pythonesses, um, his female devotees, with clairvoyance, the ability to see the future. And remember uh, here in Philippi, this is now, this is major belief. This is not some little side interesting story. In other words, she was a fortune teller and this slave girl, unlike Lydia, would have been at the very, very bottom of the social order. She was being exploited by her owners for their profit, not hers. 
And it's interesting that the two demon-possessed men in Matthew 8 cried out to Jesus, the, the demons did to Jesus, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? That's what the demons said when they encountered Jesus. And James says, you believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. So here we have another case in this girl, this demon, recognizing that these are the servants of the Most High God, and they are declaring to you the way of salvation. And so it seems that this demon-possessed slave girl, again, recognized Paul and his men as genuine servants of God with a true message. One of the ways the Old Testament defines Yahweh is the Most High. So it's very specific language here. In fact, she kept her loud declaration for days on end, kept shouting out, and Paul, again, was annoyed with her disruption. And Paul, but, and Paul essentially, he didn't ask. Rather, he said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And this wasn't like the movies where we now have an hour and a half of struggle uh, with a demon resisting. Um, the demon came out of this young girl immediately. And when the demon left, the girl was healed. Jesus said in Luke eleven twenty, But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. I think it's appropriate for us to presume that this girl was also converted to Christ, which would be consistent with other occasions when Christ cast out demons. For example... In Mark chapter 1, 32 through 34, at evening when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. So again, the indication is here that there's a work of salvation taking place. Of course, the healing of this slave girl was very good news for her, but it was really bad news for her owners. Their cash cow was now gone, and so they weren't pleased, and so they seized Paul and Silas and drugged them into the marketplace where the magistrates were. Basically, they were bringing charges against them. We take up the story in verse 20. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, uh, being Romans, to receive or observe. They're accusing them of breaking the law. They're not saying, hey, we're upset because they've taken away our prophets. Now they're accusing them of breaking the law. Then the multitude rose up together against them, And the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And we'll see this kind of thing again, for example, in Acts chapter 19. Verse 23, and about the same time there arose a great commotion about the way. That's, those were the Christians, the church. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who had made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of a similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear 
that not only at Ephesus, but also throughout all of Asia, uh, this Paul has persuaded and turned many people away, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and they cried out saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was with, uh, filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, uh, Paul's traveling companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia who were his friends sent to him, pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. It's a mob. And now they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! So there's this confrontation we see in the book of Acts with pagan religion and the gospel. And that's what the gospel does. It disrupts culture. And as a result, there is always an uproar. These are radically different views of the world. One is true. If one is true, then the others can't be. Paul was messing with their culture, and probably more importantly, he was messing with their money. While Judaism was still legal in Rome, and at this point Christianity was just seen as a subset of Judaism, proselytizing, or what we would call evangelizing, was illegal. This is true in Uzbekistan today. So we have a church there, and they can exist, but legally they may not evangelize Muslims. Same kind of situation here. So the crowd turns into an angry mob and the magistrates, being politicians, cave into the mob and, as a show of force, have them stripped and beaten and thrown into prison. This was a severe flogging with rods, the first of three that Paul will mention in 2 Corinthians 11. I suspect the word of Peter's previous escape from Herod was known, and now Paul and Silas were not only thrown into prison, but they are taken to the inner prison and fastened in stocks. And the jailer was charged very specifically with being responsible for their security. It's really astounding that after receiving such a severe beating, and being shackled in the deep recesses of the prison, the next thing we see is this. And there's a couple of things remarkable. Verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. In the Roman Empire, a prison housed both convicted criminals and those who were awaiting judgment, so it was like a jail and a prison, and in this, in this case, Paul and Silas, who had already received a severe beating, and now they're facing the possibility of more beatings or exile or even execution, 
Since they were accused of trying to subvert the Roman government with their preaching, it was likely that they would actually be put to death. That's exactly what Jesus was convicted of. Now again, this was after midnight of what had to have been an incredibly long day. That's kind of a gross understatement. This had to be a first for the other prisoners in the guards. Again, Paul and Silas surely recognized the work of the Holy Spirit in putting them in this place. No doubt they recall Joseph, Daniel, similar experiences. And clearly these men knew how to rejoice and give thanks in and for all things. And that leads us to our third conversion story. Verse 26, suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called out with a loud voice, saying, Do not uh, do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, fell down trembling before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And so they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, and immediately he and all of his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. So once again, the sovereign Jesus is reigning from the right hand of the throne on high, and after a divine earthquake shakes this prison, opens its doors, and unfastens everyone's shackles, we might assume at this point that all the prisoners would leave, That's exactly what the jailer assumed. We're not told why they didn't leave, but we know that the Holy Spirit is at work here. He may, and so he may, uh, he may as well fall on his own sword at this point because he's going to be held responsible. And I suspect they weren't going to just run him through with a sword. I suspect uh, if they got a hold of him, his death was going to be far more gruesome than that. And so he just thought he'd get ahead of it and take his own life. Paul quickly intervenes and tells him, no one's left. The jailer's relieved to learn that no prisoners escaped, and again, we don't know why. Nevertheless, he understands that something remarkable has taken place. No doubt this men knew why Paul and Silas were in prison, that they had been identified, remember, as servants of the Most High God, and that they were preaching the way of salvation. And unlike any other prisoners, these two had been singing and praying after being beaten and thrown into the prison. And it was all impressive enough that the next thing the jailer says, so, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So God's opening another heart. Unexpected, right? Surprising. Paul and Silas were ready with a clear and concise answer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And so the jailer, who I think must have had a a resident adjacent to the prison, 
He must have been living on the premises. He escorts them to his house. And here Paul and Silas deliver more of God's word to the jailer and his household. And they have their wounds washed by the jailer. That was followed by the family's baptism. Chrysostom pointed out that the washing was reciprocal. The jailer washed them and he was washed. Those he washed from their stripes himself was washed from his sins. Scottish theologian Sinclair Ferguson wrote this. He said, The occurrence of household baptisms in the New Testament is best understood as an expression of the Old Testament covenantal principle of the solidarity of the family. And while the very idea of household assumes the possibility, even the statistical probability, of a wide variety of ages, including children and infants, this per se is not the significant point. The point is that baptism of an entire household as such echoes the pattern governing circumcision in Genesis 17. The New Testament term oikos, or household, translates the Hebrew word beit. Throughout the Old Testament, it signifies the entire family, even the extended family, and automatically includes all members, whatever their ages. In particular, the Hebrew term expresses the corporate concept of family in the biblical world in distinction from the individualistic or atomistic concept of individual characteristics of our own post-enlightenment and post-modern world. I don't often quote myself, but I'm going to today from my book, Children of the Promise. Of the nine persons mentioned as having been baptized in the New Testament, two probably did not have immediate families, Saul and the Ethiopian eunuch. We are not informed about any family of two others, Simon, Magus, and Gaius. In the remaining five cases, in all five cases where a known head of household was baptized, the entire household was baptized. We may conclude then that in every case where the apostles administered baptism to the known head of a family, they also administered it to his entire household. The church father origin apparently was not mistaken when he said that the church had received the tradition of infant baptism from the apostles. Just as Lydia had done at her house, now the jailer uh, and his house uh, brings them to his house and he set food before them and he rejoiced, having believed with God and all his household. And then he takes them back to prison uh, for the rest of the night since that's where we find them the next morning. So that's why I think his, he must have had some kind of residence there adjacent. And he takes them over there, washes their wounds, they're baptized, comes back. So they've been up all night. Verse 35. And when it was day, the magistrate set, uh, sent the officer saying, let these men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. What's happened here? But Paul said to them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison, and now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. That's not happening. Let them come themselves and get us out. 
And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged encouraged them and departed. It's clear that the word had gotten back to the magistrates that they themselves had broken the law uh, once they discovered that Paul and Silas were actually Roman citizens. According to Roman law, the Roman citizen may not be beaten or bound by a magistrate or any other person under any circumstances, much less those who haven't been tried and convicted. The citizen only had to say, I am a Roman, to be immune from punishment. And what I suspect is, or I assume, is Paul and Silas tried to do that, but the noise of the the angry mob uh, in in the chaos of all that They were not heard, or at least they were ignored. Heavy penalties were prescribed in Roman law for those who violated these citizenship privileges. And now the magistrates want to quietly release them and escort them out of town, but Paul's having none of that. I think Paul's concern is about other Christians who may still be there as well. So Paul, in essence, wants a public apology. No doubt, again, for the sake of the gospel and the other Christians. So the magistrates come with their apology, hat in hand, and politely ask them to leave. And apparently Paul and Silas agreed to their request. But they made one last stop at Lydia's house to encourage the church and to say goodbye. It's interesting. I think we see, again, people are converted. They're brought into the church. They don't go to their house. They don't just go worship God alone. Lydia was already in the habit of gathering with people at the river. That took effort to get up and go. Uh, And so I want to really encourage everyone, all Christians, should be assembling with the people of God. This is where we're fed. This is where we're encouraged. This is where we serve. Lydia, we see Lydia and the jailer both serving in this case. They're not just observing. They're not just spectators. They are full participants in the life of the church. So I want to just summarize this very quickly. Luke has described three surprising conversions that span the whole spectrum. A wealthy businesswoman, a slave girl, and a blue-collar worker. Yet all three were changed by the same gospel and welcomed into the same church. One other significant point concerns the gospel and the uplifting of women. A prayer that was recited by traditional Jewish men at the beginning of the daily morning prayers. And by the way, this is not not from the Bible. This is not something they were taught from there, but a tradition that had developed. And one sentence in that included this from the men. Blessed are you, Lord God, ruler of the universe, who has not created me a woman, a Gentile, or a slave. In Acts 16... We see representatives from each of these despised categories redeemed and united in Christ. As Paul had earlier written to the Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The gospel 
removes the divisions between people and thereby removes death. It also divides communities because some reject it, but it unifies those who accept it. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for encouraging us with the record of these surprising conversions so that we might uh, learn that no one is beyond the reach of the gospel of Christ. We thank you for your free grace and your sovereign power to open hearts and change lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All your works praise you, O Lord, and your saints give thanks to you. We gratefully receive your salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You have brought us one by one to participate in this covenant community of your saints, to live, to love, and to serve together. We sit here today as the benefactors of your grace and of the saints who have gone before us. Keep us, we pray, that we too might have the blessing of participation in the work of your kingdom, that the generations to come might know your works, the children who would be born, that they might arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget your works. Lord, you have made us a people before you. You've given us a name. You've given us a place to worship. You've given us a people to serve and love. You have fed us and built us up. You've given us friends and families. You've provided food and shelter. You've given us great cause to rejoice and celebrate in Christ. Send us forth now with your blessing. Bless our feast and our fellowship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.